Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. I'd like to invite my illustrious co-hosts, Sarah Cliff and Matt Iglesias, up on the stage for a live weeds. Hi. Hello. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. Uh, this week, we are celebrating the fifth anniversary of Vox.com. Uh, part of those celebration is we recorded a live episode of The Weeds uh, with myself, Ezra, and Sarah um, at the, the, the rooftop of the Line Hotel in Washington, D.C. It, it was a really great, uh, lovely setting. Unfortunately, it did start raining while we were podcasting, so the episode is a, is a little bit on the shorter side, uh, but we did give you an unusually long episode on Tuesday, so I, I hope it all balances out in the end. Um, I also think it was just like a really great, really fun discussion. Always love the live energy. Uh, hope to do more, more live shows when we can. Uh, so give it a listen. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics Podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media. Pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context. And it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for The Weeds comes from Burrow. Okay, are you ready for the understatement of the century? Buying furniture can be frustrating. You end up visiting a bunch of stores searching aimlessly for the right pieces to match your home, then spend hours trying to get those pieces together or together again if you got it wrong the first time. And that's even if you were able to get it through the door. Burrow is a furniture company that wants to make the whole thing easier. Burrow's new Dune line features a contemporary yet timeless look inspired by the craftsmanship of classic mid-century construction. If you're looking to bring a sense of luxury, comfort, and durability to your outdoor spaces, you might want to consider Burrow. 
Like all of Burrow's pieces, they offer easy assembly and disassembly so you can move or store them away as needed. Not only that, they ship straight to your door for free. Listeners of The Weeds can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com slash weeds. That's burrow, B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash weeds for 15% off. Burrow.com slash weeds. Welcome to The Weeds. Uh, this is a show that, you know, we we try to delve into the weeds, talk about the details of policy, talk about, you know, what really matters in the issues, break things down for people who, you know, are interested in taking a step back from the kind of hubbub uh, of the political world. And for today, uh, we, I want to take a little bit of a meta turn because I, I feel like in some ways it's been a, it's a, been a very successful show. It's very heartening to meet fans. Uh, thankfully, people advertise with us. But I, I feel like we've been a little bit on the wrong side of history in terms of the political moment. And, and Happy I, fifth anniversary, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I think about about a little bit more than, than four years ago, right before my, my son was born, I was on like a little uh, vacation with, with my wife and I, I had to take like a couple hours out to get on the phone with some people from the Obama White House because they really wanted to brief me on their forthcoming childcare proposal. And, you know, I, w- I was listening to them and taking notes and asking questions. And this was it was a very this was how politics was done at the time. The proposal was really detailed, involved spending new money and taxing the rich to pay for it. So obviously, John Boehner wasn't going to go for it. It, it wasn't going to happen. But nonetheless, it was a very realistic proposal. Right. It wasn't just like a sort of broad strokes. Here's how I feel about child care. It was meant to be modest as an initiative. It was meant to sound reasonable. And I mean, it I- wasn't like the Elizabeth Warren, like free childcare for all. Exactly. Exactly. And it was, it was very, it was like, you know, some targeted tax credits, a a little tweak here. And I didn't, at the time, it's so taken for granted that this was the way you would frame a policy proposal that I asked a lot of questions about the details of it, about the weeds, so to speak. And I, and I didn't ask like, like, why are you doing this? Like, like, what is the point? And I feel like now we're in an era of, you know, on the one hand, Donald Trump, on the other hand, Bernie Sanders, but from a different ideological standpoint, like Joe Biden just announced a presidential campaign and his policy issue is he will not praise neo-Nazi marchers, um, which that's great. Like, I, I don't think people should do that either. But it's like, wait, well, what's the weeds going to be about that? Right. And. And I, I feel like that's like we, we've moved to this this very broad strokes realm of doing politics. And it's it's left me wondering, like, like what's changed and, and why? Well, I, I'll take a first step at the what's changed. And I think a lot of it is driven by the political climate. So, you know, because I, I think it's instructive to think about like this Obama era child care policy that was one they were pitching as if like, well, maybe this could pass. Like, I don't think John Boehner is going to do it, but it's like it's in like the bucket of things that were considered like realistic policy proposals. Now we have someone like Elizabeth Warren coming out with childcare for everybody up to age five. We're going to with not a super clear financing plan. Like, I think it's it's a much more disruptive policy, you know, and both of them are operating in a window where there wasn't a clear path to becoming legislation. But I think the Obama one, it kind of it had more of an eye towards like something that felt implementable at the time. I attribute, you know, some of this to kind of the changing politics in in Washington, where I think really, you know, I kind of like look back to the Obama era and the Obama era, I think, started with these like overtures towards bipartisanship with, you know, the, um, you know, first um, stimulus package followed by the Affordable Care Act, where there really was this robust effort to build policies that appealed to 
both sides of the aisle. So you have, you know, the Democrats looking at a policy created by a, you know, now Utah senator, then Massachusetts governor, a Republican Mitt Romney, as the basis for their health care plan. You know, you fast forward to now, and I feel like it's not even a consideration, like what, what would bring the other side on board? You, you see this on the Republican side with their attempts to repeal Obamacare, where it wasn't like, well, let's come up with like a consensus plan that we, you know, everyone's going to think is a good replacement for a law that, you know, has some benefits and has some flaws. It was like, no, we're going to go this alone. And then I feel like that being mimicked on the, uh, on the other side, it seems to me, I mean, you think about polarization a lot, but it seems like this like lack of any sort of a bipartisan path is really driving the types of policies. And you see two responses. So you don't really see like middle of the road, like Obama era child tax credits. You see like the Bernie Sanders, Medicare for all. You see the free college plans. You see these like really ambitious blue sky ideas. And then you see candidates like um, Pedro O'Rourke, Pete Buttigieg, who are just like, well, why even bother? It makes me so sad. But like, why even bother talking about policy? Like, we can run a campaign without a policy section on our website, which like hurts my weeds heart a little bit. Um, But it seems like you don't see anyone occupying that middle space. It's either go for broke, you know, worry about the other side or why even bother talking about policy when things are are so stalled right now. Yeah, so I agree with all that. Um, First, I would just say it turned out... You should disagree. It's more more entertaining. It's more exciting if you disagree with me. Sarah is now and always has been wrong. Um, That just got real. (laughs) It turns out, number one, there was no policy that could pass. I mean, that's the first thing, right? So the Obama administration had all these bills. They had their Buffett tax. They had their their well-targeted child care plan. And it didn't pass. It didn't pass any more than a policy 10 times that ambitious would have passed or one half that ambitious. So number one, to a point Sarah made, that pathway which like you might call the Susan Collins pathway. Can you write a policy proposal that in theory, Susan Collins would vote for, even if in practice she will not? Um, it just got discredited. So people stopped doing that. The other thing though that I think needs, uh, there, there are two other factors here that I think are important. One is we're in an age of ideological realignment where things that were taken for granted are no longer being taken for granted. So for instance, is capitalism good is not a topic that was very big in the Democratic Party in 2004 or 2008 or 2012. Like, should the Democratic candidate self-identify as some kind of socialist? Which is the answer was no. Like, like people felt like they had like a good handle on that one. And that's in part a legacy of the financial crisis and the failure of that kind of capitalism. In part, I think, um, a legacy, something I've been thinking about more and exploring more, just capitalism also becoming just an overwhelming, not just economic dimension, but like moral philosophy and everybody just becoming more and more exhausted by that. But on the right, too, you have an ideological realignment around a what you often see in Europe, a kind of nationalistic, somewhat xenophobic, socially traditional, um, and in theory, more economically populist, although that's not turned out to be part of the the policy um, agenda. But so one, we're living through a time when it is unclear what a realistic policy is, because a realistic policy, to, to Matt's point, it requires you to take those ideological boundaries for granted, and those ideological boundaries are being redrawn. But the, the final thing I'd say here is, I think part of this is a hangover of Hillary Clinton's campaign, 
where the sense was, and the lesson many Democrats took from it, is that Hillary Clinton had all of these policies, policy after policy after policy after policy, but they didn't say enough about her. And so now what people are doing is they're using policies to make moral statements about themselves and the kind of society they want. A lot of these policies are not really meant to be implemented. Um, Bernie Sanders knows that in their current state, he is not going to get the votes for the things he wants. But he is saying something about the kind of society he wants and the kind of attitude he will bring to the presidency. Elizabeth Warren is doing the same thing. Many of her policies will not be implemented as these are senators, like they know nothing passes. But she's saying something about what she thinks about capitalism, the attitude she'll bring to the presidency. So a lot of a debate that in other periods played out in other ways is playing out through the through the um mechanism now of policy plans, which are, you know, always have been to some degree messaging documents, but have become that in a much deeper and bigger way as part of the lesson of Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders being breakout stars from 2016. Wait, what's interesting to me about this, though, is that, you know, Donald Trump becoming president of the United States has been a very consequential event for Americans. And some of that is like, yes, like his tweets, you know, poison the atmosphere or, you know, maybe he says the wrong thing about like awful people marching. But a lot of it is like the EPA has changed the rules to make it easier to put neurotoxins into groundwater. Right. And there's a million things like that of which very few have actually had to do with him signing big bills that congressional Republicans passed. Now, obviously, they, they had a big effort at Affordable Care Act repeal, but it didn't happen. But Trump has still had a lot of influence on health care policy, even though that bill d- didn't pass it. And Sarah can, you know, give us chapter and verse on it. But the point is, is that like, who is president matters a lot in a lot of concrete, specific ways. And I feel like it's become challenging to get people engaged with how that is and why that is in this somewhat polarized, somewhat gridlocked kind of era. I I watched like five back-to-back presidential town halls uh, the other day. And across the five hours of them, I only heard one person, Kamala Harris, in one answer detailed a thing that like involved the actual use of the president's constitutional authorities that she was going to do. And I'm not I like checked with some lawyers and they're not 100 percent that she really could do it. But it was at least like an effort. She said, like, I am going to have the ATF tell gun dealers who sell more than five guns a year that they have to do background checks. Right. So she she claims she has the authority to do that. That's like that was fascinating to me. But there's there's been very little of it. And and there's not a real hunger for it. We had uh, Julian Castro uh, did a did a live episode of the Weeds a, a couple months ago, and he very gamely walked us through a bunch of stuff he had done as HUD secretary. You know, took advantage of the fact that he had actually served in the executive branch of the federal government. He like knows what kinds of things you can do. People have not been like that excited about his campaign. Uh, Pete Buttigieg was also on the show. He uh, he did a really good job of like ducking and bobbing whenever we we like tried to nail him down on stuff. And he talked about how generational change is good and like people are really into that. And it it bums me out. I mean, I'm for generational change, but like I would like to know how people plan to govern the country. Well, I think there's an interesting split right now on the left about like how to structure their policy ideas. And I actually think there's a great um, moment on a another Vox Media podcast called Today Explained. Our illustrious host, Sean, is here um, where he did an episode on the episode on the Green New Deal. And there was kind of a split between the two different guests 
that were being interviewed that I see all across policy where, you know, you have some people saying, let's go for broke. Like, let's do the Green New Deal because like let, that is the thing we actually want. And then like the kind of like Susan Collins, um, you know, Debbie Stabenow, like let's bring together people in the middle and find something more realistic. And I think the response from like the Green New Deal, Medicare for all world has become more reasonable to me covering policy in the past few years of kind of saying like, well, nothing's happening anyways. Like, why not just build out those ideas we are actually interested in? If the compromise thing is not going anywhere, that being seems, realistic being seems realistic totally unrealistic. Seems unrealistic. So why not do the thing that's unrealistic? And you know, there's a great comment from Dave Roberts, a Vox reporter, kind of making this case on that episode. The other thing I would be wary of is, you know, we are what? How many months over? Eighteen months out from the election. Nine so, months from Iowa, though. Nine months from Iowa. Right around the Yes. Yeah, so, so we we will live in we will live in 2020 for another eighteen months before it actually happens. We I, I do. I, I would be cautious about making any like huge proclamations about like, well, we're just we're, we're not dealing with realistic policies. I think one of the things you can expect from a primary is it's it start you, you start with like your opening bid, right? Like Bernie Sanders doesn't start with like a Medicare buy in at 50. Bernie Sanders starts with Medicare for all, no premiums, no deductibles, every benefit covered. You start with kind of your vision. And then I think as the primary progresses, as you do more town halls, as you put out more white papers, you get into that more granular sort of um, policy proposals, or maybe you do, maybe you don't. I don't know if you will. I mean, I would love to, if, you know, I, if some of Sanders staff are listening, I'd love to see a financing plan at some point for Medicare for all. Um, and so maybe we are just having this discussion very, very early in the primary. And, you know, if we had this podcast nine months from now, it'd be a different discussion. I suspect it won't be that different. <laughs> but but let me let me try to make a slightly different argument about this, because I think you're seeing in some ways different theories of change in a system that may not be able to make any change at all. Right. So one possibility right now, and I think about this a lot, is that American politics, American governance is a problem with no answer. It's like, a math problem that doesn't actually have a solution because it doesn't make sense. Like something is broken in the system. And so the kind of change people want, the kinds of campaigning and governance people find inspiring and exciting, just not going to happen. And like, there just is no answer, but like, that's not an answer either. You can't get elected on like, well, this is going to suck 2020. <laughs> um, so people have to do something different. So on the one hand, I think the theory of Bernie Sanders in that wing of the party is popular mobilization is you have policies and plans that are exciting, that are invigorating, that are not compromised, that bring out your people, be that a Green New Deal or Medicare for All, and it is this like swell of popular mobilization that changes what is politically possible. Another possibility here, and I'm a little down on Pete Buttigieg since he took a principled anti-policy stance at the CNN town hall, but I, 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 backlash I'm, I am going to part with Matt where I think he has been specific on this one thing, uh, including on the Weeds podcast and, and on mine, where his argument is that you go in and you change the system first. You go in and you try to get rid of the filibuster. Or you try to change the number of people on the Supreme Court. You pass uh, pro-democracy laws from you know voting rights things to working on gerrymandering. And that instead of doing policy first, you try to fix the policymaking mechanism first. And from there, you'll be able to, to, to make those arguments. And while Buttigieg did make, say, you know, you got to talk values before policy and, you know, maybe you can search my videos for the word Medicare. Um, <laughs> 
which is a, a wait. He said that. Yeah, he put up a thing. <laughs> oh His answer to like I have okay, no but apology. so the answer no, he wait, gave I'll, on I'll, our shows me, was better. Is what yes, you're saying. The answer he gave on the shows I think was actually quite a bit better. And then I think there's still what you're going to hear from Joe Biden, what you're somewhat hearing from Amy Klobuchar, which is. It's not total like the bipartisan route is not done. You can still do something there. You know, if you just did the work, I think that Joe Biden in his heart of hearts, he loves Barack Obama. He thinks Barack Obama was great. But the criticism you heard from Joe Biden like people and world and even some people in Obama world during the Obama administration is that Obama doesn't like hanging out with Mitch McConnell. There's like this very famous uh, White House correspondence dinner where Obama says people are always saying to me, you know, go have a drink with Mitch McConnell. Well, you go have a drink with Mitch McConnell. And like, that was a joke, but that wasn't a joke, y'all. <laughs> and so there's always been this idea that if, you know, the Biden who practices this old school transactional style, go hang out, have a drink, sit in the Senate dining room, you know, that maybe can rebuild some of those relationships and in rebuilding those relationships get not Medicare for all done, but more done. I'm skeptical, but like those are the three theories of change. They connect to the kind of policy you're seeing the the candidates be specific about. Buttigieg about court, uh, you know, Supreme Court stuff. Bernie Sanders about Medicare for all. Joe Biden and Amy Klobuchar have much narrower agendas that are a little bit more targeted. It's why Amy Klobuchar talks a lot about infrastructure because there at least conceptually is some Republican interest there. But I think that's in, we're having an argument that is really about theories of change through an argument about policy details, which is making it very confusing. But this is, I feel like, one of the big ways that that the system has gone off the rails. Because when, when I think about myself, like emotionally, intellectually, I feel more in line with the more Amy Klobuchar than Bernie Sanders view of actual policy making, right? That like, I believe in trying to make tangible improvements in people's lives over time, not like blowing up the system, not like we should all be communists or every economy should be based on Vermont bed and breakfasts or something. It's a but, slow boring of hardboards. Exactly. But the more moderate Democrats have adopted the actually the most utopian and absurd theory of political change, right? Like it is clearly not true that if Joe Biden was president of the United States, the same people who when he was vice president would whisper to him, hey, Joe, like you're awesome. If only you were in charge instead of Barack Obama, <laughs> we'd be so reasonable, right? Like they're not going to praise Joe Biden as the reasonable kind of Democrat when he's the president. And, and you saw Trump was even just like, tweeting welcoming Biden into the race and he he called him you know droopy or something um but he also praised him right he was doing the thing where he's like well like if this guy can manage to win in the new crazy democratic party that could be hard but of course if he does win republicans aren't going to be like wow it turns out democrats are super moderate and reasonable after all right and, and it's that is what I think has actually unglued the political system so much is that the people who are most invested in the idea of like concrete change of let's do an infrastructure, let's talk about the minimum wage have become completely detached from like the functioning of the system and cannot say to anyone, hey, like vote for me, you will get the half a loaf because you're not going to get anything at all from that approach. And I, I mean, I don't know what to say other than like they've really got to like s think harder about this. Yeah, I, I mean, well, if you look at someone like 
Biden, like he did serve in the Senate in like a different era when like the split the half a loaf thing worked. Like you look back at a program like, I don't know, like um, like the CHIP program, which covers a bunch of low income kids. I think that's like a classic bipartisan bill where Democrats want to cover more people. They kind of like go over, you know, to the Republicans and say like, well, what kind of people do you want to cover? And they say, well, low income kids sound like an area we can agree on. And you have, you know, both parties, Orrin Hatch from Utah, um, Ted Kennedy from Massachusetts, they kind of hammer out this bill that is, you know, not covering everyone it's just like making like one small dent in this like much larger program that we have and and it's not like that long ago that that was happening like we have senators who are serving in that era and like joe biden feels like very much like a throwback to that era at the same time like he like you're saying he was in the white house during this era when polarization gets terrible and when Republicans aren't going to vote for any of these bills. And I think it's also interesting, like when we think about just, you know, with Biden jumping into the race today, you know, I was doing a little bit of research on what his record is on health care. Um, I have not found the answer to that question, but I am still looking for it. But I think one of the interesting things I was going back and reading um, John Alter's book about the Obama presidency, The Promise, where he was one of the voices cautioning against this. He felt like, you know, it was not going to go forward, that they're going to spend too much political capital on health care, that he did not see the first year of a presidency in an era when the economy was still recovering is a good moment to take on major policy. And I think that really told me a little bit about how he governs, how he thinks about these issues that is quite in contrast to a lot of the other candidates that we're looking at. Thanks, everyone, for tuning into this live episode of The Weeds. We're going to take a short break, then we're going to be right back. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. The people who broke this system were the moderates, not because they had a utopian vision exactly of uh, politics, although at this point they do, but because they had a dumb vision of how politics works. And, And that's on two levels. So, for instance, in the Democratic Party, when they were passing Obamacare, the way the internal party negotiations went is the moderates in the most vulnerable seats said again and again, if you make the bill worse, so it's a not as good bill and people dislike it more and are angrier about it, then you'll get my vote for it. Now, if you're in a vulnerable seat, what you want is not for people to hate the policy that you were the crucial vote passing. You want them to like the policy. But the moderates, you know, your Ben Nelsons, your Joe Liebermans, they continuously had this view that the, what they had to do is compromise down on the bill. And because the compromise was in theory with a other party that wasn't going to vote for the bill, but did not like the bill at all, the compromise was not towards their constituents and their needs. The compromise was towards some conceptual idea of balance. So no public option, lower subsidies, lower total cost. Um, it would take longer to come into effect. And so then you're out there trying to defend it and it's not that defensible. Or I think stimulus is actually even a better example of this, where again and again, you know, you began having defections later on among Democrats who could have all been there, should have all been there. But 
they seem to think that if they were keeping the deficit down instead of bringing unemployment down, it would help. And it didn't help them. They're the ones, of course, who end up losing their seats. So on the one hand, I think there is this wrong view that if you are a moderate, the way to get reelected is to show independence as opposed to ensure successful governance. Uh, people tend to reelect the party in power, including the moderates, when they like how governance is going, and they wipe them out when they don't like how governance is going. And so the fact that the kind of centrist wing of parties often like their theory of it is we're going to make governance go worse in order to show that we're not totally on board with this crazy left wing agenda <laughs> that we are um, the party of is not a, a, a viable theory of politics in a polarized age. The other piece of it, though, is that it's the moderates in the other party who broke it. So to everything we're saying here. It's not that this is a crazy idea of how politics should work. As you say, it worked during CHIP. Um, you know, as someone like Joe Biden will tell you, it worked during the 80s when they had the Greenspan Commission on Social Security. And so to the extent that the Democratic Party is moving left, the Republican Party is moving right, there are a lot of big structural forces for all of that. But to the extent that in legislation, it no longer makes any sense at all to target compromise, that's Susan Collins' fault. It's Johnny Isaacson's fault. It's Ben Nelson's fault. It is the fault of people who should be out there day after day making these compromises in a real big way possible and making the other stuff impossible. We look at a Ted Cruz and blame him. We look at the people on the sort of edges of the party with the most confrontational approach and blame them. But it's actually the people who know better who should be there for that kind of compromise. It's like your Lamar Alexander's who he has done some compromises out of the public eye, but when it really comes down to it, like him and Patty Murray could have gone and really tried to do something on Obamacare, could have really gone and tried to figure out some answer for it. And there just wasn't ultimately the courage to do that. And so it's the moderates who run around lamenting the death of the political system they love, but have never really seemed to have the courage to do the hard things to make that political system work, who I think deserve a lot more blame for this than they actually get. I mean, I I think that's right. But I, I also think there's an important sort of asymmetry there, right? Which is that as politics devolves into a kind of symbolic struggle, right? There's a there's a systematic advantage to the forces of the conservative movement, right? That like white people from Christian backgrounds are a big plurality group in the United States of America that can hold together very easily on a kind of pure politics of symbolism. It's much more challenging challenging to like stitch together a left coalition based on diverse group of identities. And then on concrete sort of policy ends, right? The funders of the conservative movement just have a lot of ideas that like wouldn't fly with the electorate, right? So keeping the question of the tangible impact of public policy on people's lives sort of off the table, it makes money for the people who are behind it, right? And then when you have the moderate Democrats, I mean, because I agree with you that it's it's the moderates, but I, but I do feel the fault lies actually more squarely on the kind of red state Democrats, because if you look at like, why is it hard for a Democrat to win in Indiana? Why is it hard to win in Missouri? Why is it hard to win in, in North Dakota? Right. It's it's cultural politics. It's the sense that Democrats stand for the kinds of people who live in big, diverse cities. Right. And so. What you would want to do running in a state like that is try to say, no, like, yes, like culture and identity are important to people and they are important, like aspects of the world. But also a lot of what we do in Congress is like really tedious stuff you can learn about on the Weeds podcast. Right. But those same members actually tend to veer toward the right, not just on like 
hazy cultural politics, but on concrete policy. Like, those are the members who are most resistant to taxing wealthy people, the members who are most resistant to spending money on public employment programs. And there's, frankly, I I think it's hard to see anything other than a kind of corruption at work that has, to me, like, made me much more just personally open to, like, left critiques. And I think it's, uh, I don't know, it's, it's disturbing to be wrong about things. I'm curious how you guys think about primary policy making on on the right, kind of picking up where where Matt was, where intellectual I think, dynamos <laughs> in the Trump White House, where <laughs> blows my mind. <laughs> Looking at Congress a little bit more, less at the White House is, you know, when I look at Medicare for all, like I like I have a theory, like oh that excites people, that sounds exciting, like you know when I think of Green New Deal, there's a lot about it that you know can get people excited, but then when I look at like Obamacare repeal or the tax package, like one of the things that has kind of confused me a lot about the way Republicans have been legislating is they keep pursuing policies that are just not very popular. Like they are like, you know, all these things are, you know, um, in in the 20s, 30s of polling. Um, How do you guys think about like the era of unpopular policymaking that we're in? The, The Republican Party is breaking apart as a policy institution, as a policy theory. And I mean this in two ways. One is that There is a conflict right now between the Republican Party that seems to support what Donald Trump says he supports, but does not have the interest, energy or capacity to actually execute as a policy vision. And then a traditional Republican Party policy agenda that the party kind of as a popular organization is moving away from, that its key media figures like Tucker Carlson are moving away from that is hideously unpopular, as Sarah says, but that remains like the only thing the Republican Party wants to do in Congress or, or in the executive branch. And I think that you really see it with something like Paul Ryan's retirement. You know, like the guy becomes speaker and two years later is like, peace, I'm out. Like this is not working. And so what you have is a is a now a real conflict between these wings of the party that Matt was identifying, a, a party that is there for symbolic cultural politics uh, and 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 not even symbolic cultural politics, but often like real cultural politics, right? Real anti-immigration and restrictionist policy, real changes to 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 how inclusive our policymaking actually is. But would like alongside that social safety net policy that take that takes care of them, right? Which is something you see a lot in Europe, but they can't get it, and so. You, because they're being blocked by this, you know, billionaire's wing of the party, this like interest wing of the party that still has power over the actual policymaking levers. And so the Republican Party in this way is an organization at war with itself, united by its war against the Democrats, right? Like internally, the divisions are tremendous. Externally, they really hate Hillary Clinton or Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And like war is a force that gives us meaning, or in this case, partisanship uh, is a force, negative partisanship is a force that gives us meaning. And that's papering over splits in the coalition that are at this point really quite profound. True. (laughs) (laughs) I am going to take the good advice of the experiences team, cut it off here so we do not uh, electrocute ourselves or anything. (laughs) Thanks. Thank you all for being out here in Rough
This special episode of The Weeds was taped in front of a live audience at The Line DC to celebrate Vox's fifth anniversary. If you enjoyed it, we think you'll also enjoy the live taping of Recode Decode with Kara Swisher and a special episode of The Ezra Klein Show with me and fellow co-founders Ezra Klein and Melissa Bell. To listen to them, just search for Recode Decode or The Ezra Klein Show in Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast apps, or just tap the links in the show notes. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com.